0: All right, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Last Lord's Day, we began this chapter and got to verse 15. Today, we'll pick up from there and cover down to verse 44. But before we read that section, I just want to do a quick recap of what we saw last week. Again, if you recall... We ended chapter 10 with Jesus and his disciples fleeing Jerusalem. Not because Jesus was scared, but it just simply was not time for his death. And while they were away, Mary and her sister Martha sent someone to Jesus to inform them that Lazarus was very ill. And right away we encounter a few things from Jesus, a few things that he says, a few things that he does that seem a little odd. First, he says that this illness does not lead to death. Is for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, if you had heard that in real time, you might not think much about it. You might just think, well, Jesus is going to go to him and heal him so that the illness does not lead to death. However, as readers who may already know how this story ends and that Lazarus does end up dying, it seems strange for Jesus to say this illness does not lead to death. And then another odd thing comes up. We read in verse 6 that when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And you kind of expect the opposite, don't you? You kind of expect Jesus to take off for Bethany immediately, not delay for two days. And then after the two days are up, Jesus says to them, let us go to to Judea, and that verse 11, Lazarus has fallen asleep. Well, the disciples thought he meant falling asleep as in resting in sleep. But Jesus was speaking of his death. And then the third thing odd comes up. Knowing that the disciples did not understand that he meant death, he then tells them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there. So, Jesus knew his illness would lead to death, even though it appears he said that it wouldn't. He delays going to Lazarus for two days to allow Lazarus to die. And Jesus was glad he didn't go sooner to heal him and prevent the death. Again, these are not the words and actions you would expect to see and hear from someone who cared for Lazarus and his family. And I think John knows that you may question that because he emphasizes Jesus' love for this family multiple times. Verse 3, they said, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So how do we reconcile all that? How do we make sense of Jesus intentionally delaying And being glad that he was not there sooner? Well, we learned a valuable lesson in all of that, which was the major point last week. We learned that it was not out of hatred, or lack of concern, or a lack of love. In fact, the word so, at the beginning of verse 6, connects us to verse 5. And demonstrates that it was exactly because he loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus that Jesus delayed in going. The delay was intentional because it had a purpose behind it, a design. And what was that purpose? Well, Jesus permitted the death in order that he would go and awaken him to rise him from death, from death. And in doing that, death would not have the final say. Hence our Lord saying this illness does not lead to death. And God is glorified so that the son of God, so that the son of God may be glorified through it. And verse 15, so that you may believe. Despite how things may have looked or appeared on the surface, the reality is is that Christ had full control over the entire situation from beginning to end, and it served a greater purpose. And so I encouraged you last week, and do so again today, to recognize that there might be times when you find yourself in desperate situations seeking God's help, but it seems like he is not responding. These situations could include times of illness, financial struggles, relationship issues, persecution, distress, hunger, danger, and even death. There might be moments when you carry a heavy heart filled with sorrow, yearning for God's intervention, yet it seems like he remains silent. But when those times come, beloved, understand it's crucial that you not perceive his delays as denials. Instead, interpret them as indications of his love for you. Even though it may be difficult, persist in the belief that God knows exactly what is best for you. Consequently, consequently the delay is not intended to harm you, but to aid you. Last week, I read some of Romans 8. I won't do that again today. But as I was thinking through this again, uh, preparing for this, Hebrews 11 came to mind. Hebrews 11, we read, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old receive their commendation. And in verse 6, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And beloved, do you not think these people of old had their trials and tribulations? We read about this in this chapter. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect." So these people died in faith. Verse 13, having not received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Verse 16. You see, beloved, they believed God. They believed his promises. They trusted God. They believed that he would keep his word no matter how things might appear on the surface in the here and now. And therefore, verse 16, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. You see that? There's an end game here. There's a purpose. There's a goal. There's a telos. Just as there was a purpose and end game here with Lazarus. and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, verse 13, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral and unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So, beloved, do you trust him? Do you believe him? Do you believe that God will do exactly what he has promised and said he would do in his word, no matter how things may appear in the here and now. Do not lose hope. It is all decreed for our good. But it is not only for our good, but also for the glory of God. There is one other thing I want to emphasize today in these first 15 verses that I didn't necessarily get to last week. And that is, notice that in verse 4, Jesus said that this interaction with Lazarus is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Beloved, notice the two go hand in hand. This is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. You cannot divorce the glory of God, the Father, from the glory of God, the Son. And why do I emphasize this? Well, about two weeks ago on uh, Facebook, Our friend, Dr. John Barber, posted this. He said, this is the core statement of Vatican II on Islam, which says that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. What do you think about this? And then he quotes the statement. Here's the statement from the Vatican II. The church has also a high regard for the Muslims. They worship God who is one living and subsistent, Merciful and almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, who has spoken to men. They strive to submit themselves without reserve to the hidden decrees of God, just as Abraham submitted himself to God's plan, to whose faith Muslims eagerly link their their own. Although not acknowledging him as God, they venerate Jesus as a prophet. His virgin uh, mother they also honor and even at times devoutly invoke. Further, they await the day of judgment and the reward of God following the resurrection of the dead. For this reason, they highly esteem an upright life in worship God, especially by way of prayer, alms, deeds, and fasting. So Dr. Barber asked a good question. What do we do with this? You could also ask the same about Jews who claim to worship God. Well, we learn here from John's gospel exactly what we should think about it. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Beloved, you absolutely cannot honor God while dishonoring the Son. I don't care how sincere a person may be, a Jew or a Muslim or any other person. The oneness of the Son with the Father is such that you cannot dishonor one without dishonoring the other. We've already seen this here in this gospel. Uh, Chapter 5, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. But the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom whom he will." For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And then in John chapter 8, the Jews said, We have one Father, even God. We worship God, we worship the Father. And Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. If i tell the truth why do you not believe me whoever is of god hears the words of god the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of god calvin commenting on this statement here in john 11 that it is for the glory of god so that the son of god may be glorified states this expression is highly emphatic For we learn from it that God wishes to be acknowledged in the person of his Son in such a manner that all the reverence which he requires to be given to his own majesty may be ascribed to the Son. Hence we are told formally, He who did not honor the Son does not honor the Father. It is in vain for Mohammedans and Jews, therefore, to pretend to worship God. For they blaspheme against Christ, And even endeavor in this manner to rob God of Himself. Well, amen. Well, that now leads me to verse sixteen here in John chapter eleven, where now we pick up. And so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been already had already been in the tomb four days. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, them, unbind him and let him go. Now, after having dealt with some seemingly odd things last week, the story now appears to be pretty straightforward, doesn't it? But as straightforward as it may seem, there are a few points of dispute. First, one point of dispute is in verse 25, which I think is the most important verse in the story. After Jesus tells Martha that Lazarus will rise again, Martha said to him, Well, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, it shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The dispute is, what form of resurrection is Jesus talking about here? Some, like the hyperpreterist, believe that Jesus had a spiritual resurrection in mind only. Nothing else. In other words, they would read this passage like this. I know Lazarus will bodily rise in the last day. And Jesus corrects her, saying, Well, resurrection is believing in me. And when you believe in me, though you physically die, you are spiritually raised and you will never spiritually die. Even among theologians and scholars who are not promoting hyperpreterism or any other bodily uh, resurrection view, denial, there is still some question here as to what form of resurrection Jesus is referring to. And then there's this dispute, which centers around verse 33. Which states that when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Many people believe that being deeply moved and greatly troubled here, it's just simply Jesus expressing his grief and sorrow over Lazarus's death, and expressing grief along with the family's sadness and showing empathy. Well, there's a little problem with that. And the problem is the underlying Greek that is translated as deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. First, this, this phrase, deeply moved, the Greek word underneath this is embry mami. In Greek text outside of the Bible, it can refer to the snorting of horses. And when applied to people, it invariably suggests anger, outrage, or emotional indignation. It's used here in this story twice, verse 33 and 38, and it occurs only three other times in the New Testament. We see it, for example, in Matthew 9.30, Jesus heals two blind men and then, quote, sternly warns them not to tell anyone. That's our word. In Mark 1, we see the same thing. Jesus heals a leper and then sternly charged him not to say anything. And then in Mark 14, after a woman breaks a flask containing very costly ointment and pours it over Jesus' head, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. There's our word again. Scolded. They rebuked her. But then there's this phrase, greatly troubled, here in John 11. It's a word that signifies being shaken or agitated. It's the same word in John 14, 1, where Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled believe in God, believe also in me. And so as D.A. Carson states, it is lexically inexcusable to reduce this emotional upset to the effects of empathy, grief, pain, or the like. Neither of these words are positive. Jesus here is upset about something. He's shaken. He's angered about something. And if that's the case, what is he angry about? Even among those who would acknowledge that Jesus is angry about something, there's some dispute over exactly what he's angered about. Some people suggest that Jesus was just angry in general over sin and over what sin has brought, the curse and death. And it's not necessarily anything in particular having to do with Martha, Mary, and the Jews mourning with them. Well, how do we handle some of these disputes? First, let's start with this last part about Jesus being deeply moved and greatly troubled. Then we'll move on and end on the resurrection. I do believe that Jesus was agitated and upset. And while I suppose it's possible that being agitated over sin and death was part of it in general, I believe this is primarily directed at Martha, Mary, and the Jews. There's a couple of reasons why I say that. First... Isn't it interesting that both Martha and Mary say the exact same thing to Jesus when they meet up with him? It just jumps off the page to you. They both say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had gotten here sooner, this would not have happened. Now Martha would add, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And then Martha said, well, I know he will rise again again and the resurrection on the last day so even though she is expressing some truth here you can detect some doubt some suspicion lord if you had only gotten here sooner lazarus would not have died well your brother's going to rise again well yeah i know he's going to rise again on the last day you can see here that though there is some truth she's not getting the full picture here of what's going on And then there's Mary and the Jews. Mary tells Jesus that Lazarus would not have died had Jesus been there. Jesus sees her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. And together, this leads to Jesus being shaken and angered. You see, it wasn't just what Mary said and did, but also what the Jews were doing as well. We see this again in verses 37 and 38. Some of the Jews, upon seeing Jesus weep, said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he not, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Do you hear the skepticism? The doubt? He opened the eyes of the blind man. Why could he not keep this man from dying? And then verse 38, Jesus deeply moved again. Embry Mommy came to the tomb. Here they are clearly questioning his motives and perhaps his power, and Jesus is angered again. I think when you step back and you look at the whole story, how it's flowing, you get the sense that there is some doubt and suspicion from these folks about Jesus, who he is, and what he's doing. And as we pointed out already, Jesus' words and actions at the beginning of the story certainly came across that way. If you did not understand what he was doing, he intentionally delayed for two days in going to Lazarus. Lazarus dies as a result, and then Jesus rejoices that he was not there to prevent his death. Well, this is another reason why I believe this being deeply moved in trouble has more to do with being agitated and shaken at their unbelief than expressing grief and sorrow over Lazarus with them. Jesus had already stated that he was glad not to be there. He rejoiced in what took place because he knew exactly what all this was going to result in, what was going to come of it. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, man, Jason, that doesn't seem very kind of Jesus. I mean, their brother dies, and understandably so, they're weeping and they're mourning over his death. Is it wrong to weep? Is it wrong to mourn the loss of a loved one? Well, no. I don't think it's wrong to mourn and grieve. It's only natural. The beloved, understand that there is a mourning and there's a grieving that can lead to despair and hopelessness and skepticism. And that's what I believe is going on here to various degrees among various people. And it shook Jesus. It troubled him. It agitated him. Lord, if he had been here, Jesus would not have died. Could he have not kept this man from dying? So you see the skepticism and the unbelief. You can sense the false assumptions on Mary and Martha's part. How did they know that Jesus would have immediately healed Lazarus and prevented his death had he been there sooner? They didn't know that. It was presumption. Calvin notes, she begins with a complaint, though in doing so, she modestly expresses her wish. Her meaning may be expressed thus, By thy presence thou mightst have delivered my brother from death, and even now thou canst do it, for God will not refuse thee anything. By speaking in this manner, she gives way to her feelings, instead of restraining them under the rule of faith. I acknowledge that her words proceeded partly from faith, But I say that there were disorderly passions mixed with them, which hurried her beyond due bounds. For when she assures herself that her brother would not have died if Christ had been present, what ground has she for this confidence? Certainly it did not rise from any promise of Christ. The only conclusion, therefore, is that she inconsiderately yields to her own wishes instead of subjecting herself to Christ. When she ascribes to Christ's power and supreme goodness, this proceeds from faith. But when she persuades herself of more than she had heard Christ declare, this has nothing to do with faith. For we must always hold the mutual agreement between the word and faith, that no man may rashly forge anything for himself without the authority of the word of God. You see, with Martha, he was mixed. It was probably the same with Mary. Mary. But with some of the Jews, there was nothing but a clear expression of unbelief and skepticism. So when you step back and look at all this going on, there was this mourning and this grieving that went beyond the bounds. And hence Jesus becomes shaken and outraged. Beloved, hear the words of the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we always, will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. See, Paul didn't say, don't grieve for your brothers and sisters who have fallen asleep, which is the same word Jesus used of Lazarus, by the way. Rather, Paul says that in your grieving, do not grieve as those who have no hope. Do not allow your grief and warning lead to suspicion and doubt and unbelief in God. Do not allow your grief to step out of bounds. And what forms those bounds, the boundaries is the knowledge of God's Word, of his promises. Paul says, I I don't want you to be uninformed, ignorant. Uninformed about what? Verse 15. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord. And so, verse 18, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words from the Lord, God's word. It's that word that sets the boundaries. It's what guides us even in our moments of grief and sorrow. It's what lays out for us the grand scheme and purpose and goal of it all so that we learn that even through these desperate times and difficult struggles, these are just the means to an end. Well, speaking of the word and his promises, that then finally leads me to this first dispute I raised regarding Jesus' statement about the resurrection and its form. You know, there was some, like I said, there was some truth to what Martha said. Lazarus will be raised on the last day. Jesus himself said this multiple times already, as we read in this gospel in chapter 6. He said in verse 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me and raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. And verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And so the hyper-preterist or anyone else who denies bodily resurrection of all on the last day are simply wrong. Jesus clearly taught over and over again, and you cannot possibly miss this. And so however we interpret Jesus' response to Martha, we absolutely cannot interpret it in such a way so as to ignore what Jesus has clearly taught. Martha was correct in stating that I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But here is possibly where I think she missed the mark. As we have noted, there was some error mixed in with truth here with Martha. And while she affirmed the future body resurrection of all in the last day, she may have entertained some doubt and suspicions about Christ specifically. And this, along with the doubts expressed by Mary and the Jews with them, again is what shook Jesus and agitated him. But I want you to notice how Jesus responds to her. He doesn't scold her. He doesn't call her out and embarrass her in front of everybody. But he gently steers her in a direction and draws her out in coming to a fuller understanding of what resurrection is and who it is grounded in and who Christ is. And so he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And then what's the result? Verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. As we noted, Jesus had previously spoken about the concept of resurrection on the last day, aligning with mainstream Jewish beliefs. However, he has emphasized that he, with the explicit approval of the Father, is the only one who will raise the dead on that day. You see, Jesus wants to shift Mar- Martha's focus from some detached belief in a future event to a personal belief in him as the sole provider of the resurrection. Just as he not only provides the bread from heaven, but is also the bread of life, he not only raises the dead on the last day, but is himself the embodiment of resurrection and eternal life. Outside of Christ, there is no resurrection and there is no eternal life. And this is the great mystery. Yes, Martha, Lazarus will rise on the last day. You're correct. But understand that that day has now stepped into the present because it is had in me. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the Messiah. Do you believe? Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ. You see, I don't believe the issue here is is an either or about the form of resurrection. I don't think that's even really the point. The point here is Jesus is giving her the full picture it's both. And if you remember, we saw this back in John chapter 5. When the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God, Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son could do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he is doing. Greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. Say to you, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do you hear John chapter 11 in this? Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He has passed from death to life. And yet, verse 28 of chapter 5, But do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done good to the resurrection of judgment. There is a resurrection on the last day. And here in chapter 11, you hear Jesus say, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. You see, this is the fullness of resurrection life. That resurrection life for the believer begins in the here and now. And then it culminates in the body of resurrection on the last day. It's not either or, it's both. And it's all found in Christ. The future has stepped into the present. It's now before you. And Jesus then is going to give him a little preview of it when it comes to Lazarus. I want to close with these words from D.A. Carson. I think he expresses it well here. He says that the last half of verse 25 stipulates that the believer, even though he or she dies, will nevertheless come to life at the resurrection. The first half of verse 26 stipulates that the believer, the one who already enjoys resurrection life, this side of death, will in some sense never die. This is a recurring theme in this gospel. In anticipation of Jesus' resurrection and the pouring out of the Spirit, there is the repeated promise that those who believe in him will immediately possess eternal life. I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Ordinary mortal life ebbs away, but the life that Jesus gives never ends. It is in that sense that whoever lives and believes in Jesus will never die. Such a degree of realized eschatology prompts Caseman at one point to suggest that the fourth gospel displays the heresy of Hymenaeus and Philetus, in other words, hyper who taught that the resurrection had already taken place. But that misunderstands John rather badly. Although John lays stress on the present experience of the life only Jesus can give, it is never at the expense of denying the prospect of ultimate resurrection. And in this instance, as in chapter 5, two themes are juxtaposed. All the major New Testament writers maintain some sort of tension between futurist eschatology and inaugurated or realized eschatology. John lays more stress on the latter than some. Unlike the heretics of 2 Timothy 2, he nevertheless insists that the resurrection will take place and the locus of both resurrection and eternal life is in Jesus. End quote. You see, beloved, the reason Jesus possesses the power of resurrection is rooted in, in his identity as the Messiah, the Son of God. His ability to give life stems from his divine nature and authority. And the raising of Lazarus from the dead serves as a tangible manifestation of Jesus being the resurrection and the life. It is through this miraculous act that he asserts his authority over death and demonstrates his capacity to bestow eternal life. And while anyone can make claims about having such power, Jesus actually substantiated his words through this remarkable miracle of bringing Lazarus back to life. This would showcase his inherent life-giving and resurrection power that resides within him And he proves that he is indeed the embodiment of resurrection and of life. And so I ask you now what was asked of Martha. Do you believe this? Indeed, that is the overall purpose of this gospel, was it not? And we are brought again to that question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God? And I pray that you follow Martha in her great confession and you'd be encouraged to do so despite how things may appear in the here and now on the surface. Let's pray.